All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? It's me, Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? What are you up to, huh? What's new? What's new? That's not something you're hearing a lot of people ask. What's new? What adventures have you been on uh, since I've last talked to you? Where where have you gone lately? Do you have any stories of your travels? Nope. No, I've gone to all of the rooms in my home and out here to the garage at least once this week, just to say that I did it. What's new? I guess people are really figuring out who they are. I don't know. I've talked about this before, and you know, eventually shit is going to grind down. You know, people, it's amazing it's only been two and a half weeks, isn't it? But it really has. I think it's only been about two and a half weeks since the major lockdown, at least out here. And again, my thoughts go out to everybody struggling with isolation, with family, but most importantly with sickness. Talk to my mother. Her best friend has uh, has the sickness and is dealing with it. She's an older woman and... Uh, She's doing okay, I guess, but the the fear becomes about you know not giving it to her husband, and you, you know it's it's a real thing, and it's going to affect everybody eventually. By the way, Ben Sinclair is on the show today from the HBO show High Maintenance. We had him scheduled. It was right. You know, I'm I'm trying to think what day it was. That he was scheduled to come on, but it was right at the beginning of like the distancing and like maybe we shouldn't be, t- you know, being around other people. But he, he, it was like a Sunday even, but we were already sort of like, I don't know, man, we should really be isolating. We should really be shut in. And I gave him the option. I said, man, I'm, I'll do it, you know, and I don't know where I'm at. I feel fine, but I don't know if, you know, I'm, I got it and I'm going to give it to him or if he's guy, he's going to give it to me, but I'm willing to do it. We go about it carefully, and that day, day of, he um, he he decided no, that he wasn't feeling well. And I had not been feeling well a little before that, but I, it was just one of those things where it's like, all right, okay, well, open door. You know, if you're going to be in town, because he's a New York guy. And a few days later, we did it, and uh, this is the conversation that you're going to hear a little later. And then just a few days ago, he actually texted me. He said, uh, I just realized coming out to do our interview got me out of New York and may have saved my life. He's still out here and he's seeing, uh, got a, a, a woman he's seeing out here as well. But I, I did tell him that, that I was happy to talk to him, but I'm sorry we didn't talk about death more. Because death is sort of a big through line, a big theme in high maintenance. And initially when this show started, I didn't know what to make of him. I didn't know what to make of the show. But then I got into it and I really started to realize that, you know, I'm old and that it was a fairly accurate and interesting and intimate depiction of, of all the different types of lives that inhabit New York City. And I think it's fairly honest to the subject matter. I, I After watching many episodes in a few different seasons i realized that this is you know in in a broad sense you know how 
some directors or, or people that shoot in specific places really go out of their way to make the environment a character in the show. I think that high maintenance really shows New York in its current state and the, and the people who, who inhabit it and, and their lives. I just think it's a very beautiful and poetic and honest, and dare I use the word authentic, uh, characterization of that city at this point in time. I think mostly Brooklyn. But look, you guys, I talked to my dad, checked in with my dad, checked in with my mom. She's in Florida. She's all of a sudden nervous and scared. She should be. A, it's a, you know, there's a moron running that state, a few of them. And I really have a, I'm really a, a little scared for Florida right now, but I guess I'm, it's going to pop up everywhere. But what have I been doing? What have we been doing? Lynn and I are in this house together. We're in this isolation quarantine trip together. We made another pot of stock. And we've been watching stuff. I've got the Criterion channel and I see a lot of uh, high-minded people have the same and people are kind of like, these are the movies I'm watching. And I've been bouncing around with uh, things to watch. But the one I did watch last night was uh, a Michelangelo Antonioni movie. And I'd only seen, I'd seen two of his films years ago. I'd seen uh, Blow Up. And uh, when I was in college, we saw Red Desert. And I remember being sort of in awe of the way it looked. I remember very little of the movie. And I was sure, not unlike many movies I saw studying film, that I was missing something. I did not get it. Why wasn't it more entertaining? Why did I not understand why this is good? Why? What? Why am, am I dumb? Why is this such a special movie to so many people? I don't even know what the fuck it's about. But that kind of softened and evolved into, uh, maybe that's just not for me. And then it evolved into, like, maybe I'm not appreciating the context here. We got to, there's a battle. We have to, we have, we, we have to fight to maintain the contexts. Is it still important? To assess a film on its own terms within the context of the history of the medium. Yes, has to be. At least for, keep your brain active, right? I mean, can't all be Spencer Confidential, can it? Can't all be just, uh, we're all doing TV now, man. The best and the brightest of the visionaries are, they're all doing TV. But what about the movies, man? What about those wide angle lenses, man? What about that depth of field? Everything's in focus from this cup on this table to that fucking guy sitting outside 50 yards away through the fucking window. What's going on out there? I watched The Passenger, uh, Antonioni's movie starring Jack Nicholson. And I just remembered the scope of Red Desert. And I remembered, I, I think that Blow Up really in and of itself is all about lenses. But he, I think he uses a lot of these wide angle lenses for these deep shots. And they're just stunning. But it's really the story of the movie is, is poetic in what it leaves out. You know, everything is tight and over explained and, you know, kind of uh, the b disbelief you have to suspend in order to engage in something meant as entertainment fodder on a story level is you know, profound and it's not for art reasons. But this is a, it's an odd story. It's a, about a, a reporter, a, a wartime reporter on assignment, I think in Chad. 
and you know he's covering uh, a government there that's under attack by guerrillas, leftist guerrillas perhaps, or just uh, opposition forces. And he's just staying at this hotel, and he, he's friends with the guy, you know, I guess across the hall. And uh, he goes in to say hi to that guy, and that guy's dead. And then, you know, Nicholson, his character, or Nicholson himself as well, looks enough like this guy that he just assumes that guy's identity, switches out the pictures and the passport without knowing anything about the guy, just so he can get out. He can escape his life. Back in the day where it was sort of possible, you just switch the pick on the passport. You have the locals bury the body. You know, they report you dead with your stuff there and you just kind of wander the world with this falsified passport and, you know, kind of tricky for people to find you, I guess. But that really wasn't what it was about. The backstory of it is he's got a wife that he is no longer really with who's fucking some other dude who looks like a, just like an alpha dude, monster dude. And, uh, I think there's some element of a study of masculinity there. And you kind of find out that she was, didn't think that, uh, Jack Nicholson, the character, the, he was playing the reporter really had much courage or balls or the ability to take a stand or pick a side. And then it turns out the character the guy whose identity he took is a gun dealer, a gun runner, and he's sort of mired in this arming the opposition of this kind of autocratic leader that Nicholson had interviewed, and you see pieces in the interview. It's sort of complicated, but it's really about, about who we are. What do you stand for? You know, when it comes right down to it. But it's one of those 70s movies, man, one of those this existential explorations where I... I can walk away from a movie like that and think like, you know, I don't know, man, it's kind of sparse or maybe I can get something or I can accept what's given to me by a master, an artist and, and think about it. And then, you know, I woke up thinking about it, thinking about the shots, thinking about the story, thinking about that tone that was popular at that period of time in film and, and really kind of being able to make it, contemporary and make it relevant to me what do we stand for you know who what is your identity what is that based on shoes a name a job you know what are you made out of and i think that in some ways this time alone may give us a or, or at least isolated or at least you know with out of the i guess out of the routine I know, you know not everyone has the time to meditate on you know, what's important to them or their purpose in the world. But, but it is sort of a time to be out of the routine. You know, it's a beautiful thing in the midst of all this horror that we're experiencing on a governmental level and now on a health level and on a, all the levels is that um, everybody's kind of living the same shitty life right now in a way with the same real fears, most people, most smart people, on some level, you're not missing anything. The competition is over. Everyone's fucking doing the same thing now. Trying to transcend fear, stay cool, 
Stay safe. Hope for the best. Don't get too fat. So, Ben Sinclair, a nice guy, didn't know much about him. Turns out we got more than I thought in common. I thought he was a little, I you know, I was, a, I thought he might be a little odd. Of course, he's a little odd, but, but as I said, he canceled once because he didn't feel well, and then we eventually got it together. And and I've been, I've been doing that. I mean, we're allowed to do these podcasts. We are an essential service under the media in the media um, subcategory. And if people want to come over, I, I can provide them a, a, a clean, safe environment. I won't touch them. This is a little before it got more crazy when Ben came over. But, um, but it was the beginning of it. And uh, we had a nice talk. And this is me uh, talking to Ben Sinclair. His show, High Maintenance, is in season four. It's the fourth season. It's on HBO. It's on now. The season finale is on uh, this Friday, April 3rd. You can watch all the episodes of all four seasons on HBO Go and HBO Now. But now you can hear me talk to him, Ben Sinclair. I even had, like, I had these really cute face masks that I was like, oh, maybe we'll wear face masks yeah. for this. They were, yeah. I got them in Japan. Yeah. I actually have them with me. You want to see them? They're cute face masks. You'll see. Oh, we can still that? wear them if you oh, want. There, I, I would. Oh, that's nice. I would keep holding them. They're kind of a tough item to find now. Oh yeah, people I'm, are stockpiling. Purell is gone. Exactly. Oh, so I was on my way to see you on yeah. Sunday, and I visited my friends at a gymnastics uh, place where he brought his kids. <laughs> you were you were coming over here, and, and but you weren't coming over here. I was on my way. Listen, I was on my way to come over here, but I woke up at six a.m. because I flew in on Saturday sure. night. Okay. So I woke up. My friends like, "Hey, we're my kids are doing gymnastics yeah. right down from the apartment I'm staying in." So yeah. I went down there with these face masks. Right. Visited them. I leave, I'm like, oh, fuck, where are the face masks? I right. left the face masks with the Jeremy kids in the yeah. gymnasium. But and they were in package. They, they were, were in package. But, yeah. I, but I even, well, it doesn't matter. The face masks are good. They're, right. they're an option for us. Well, let's, uh, well, good. I, let's see how we feel going into it. Yeah. I think already with this mic in my face, whatever damage that was going to happen. Yeah, would have happened. Been done, you right? know, oddly, uh, for that morning, my producer, because I was sick. I mean, that I was know. the issue. I, and I really was sick. Um, but I was willing and, you know, you agreed and my producer goes, well, maybe you should change out the windscreens. I'm like, I don't know if I have one, but that, that's actually a clean windscreen. Oh, there's no goop in there. Well, but I, we were joking that it was a breakthrough yeah. that I didn't come through here. Yeah. Well, explain that because, so, cause the, here's the message I got. Mm -hmm. Let's just get to the truth of it. Let's if get want, to the truth of it. If you want transparency. I can, uh, we can do that now. That's all I want. Um, okay. <laughs> so I, I got set up. I, you know, I, I was ready for you to come and then I get a, I get a text or a call that, um, you weren't feeling well. You had agreed to do it even though I was sick, which I, 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 I took a bet with Lynn. I was like, do you think he'll do it or not? And I'm like, I think he'll do it. I was about to do it. I think he'll it. ride out the storm. I don't think he's afraid. I, I wasn't afraid of coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't feeling well either. But, but that's what I got. I got, he doesn't feel well and the car didn't come. The car didn't come. That wasn't my thing. 
The that car was, was our Whose thing. fault was that? HBO? Uh, let's blame HBO. Yeah, HBO's fault. HBO, HBO fucked up the car You know, situation. it was HBO Max, actually. Oh, they fuck. fucked it up. Um, no, I the car didn't come. I couldn't find my face mask. I got a text earlier that morning from a jilted lover from the past. How, how far back? Uh, the last relationship before the relationship I'm in now. So, oh, okay, so not before the marriage. Not before the marriage. The marriage ended almost four years ago. The marriage is a Trump era. We are a Trump era divorce. The, right. The day we decided to yeah. separate was election day, 2016. Mm-hmm. Did you have the, the discussion before the results were in or after? Before the results were in. <laughs> we we decided to separate, and then we watched the, yeah. the news. We watched him take it, oh. and then we watched Friends. We watched an episode of Friends afterwards, and then we slept in separate beds. Ugh. It was actually a great way to consolidate all of my grief with the rest of the... Like, when you, something bad happens to you, yeah, you know, it's it's one thing to, like, go outside and everybody else is going on with life as usual. Like Nobody old, was. But nobody was. <laughs> I left my apartment and everybody was upset. And I was like, well, at least everyone's upset, right, not right. just me. Yeah, for different reasons. But you had... Yours was compounded. Uh, consolidated. Oh, you consolidated it that day. Because I was going to be upset about both. So why don't just, you know. Oh, so you just, well, yeah, right. But okay. It's like I had twins. (laughs) Horrible, (laughs) horrible, stressful, sad twins. Yeah. But so, so the jilted lover. The jilted lover texted me with, uh, whatever. How long were you with that person? About a year. Oh, so a year and a half. Not nothing. It was not nothing. Yeah. And, uh. And I was told by my PR people, like, get in, I'll just take an Uber and I'll pay for it. Right. And I thought, I lost the face masks. I'm all emotionally twisted uh, up. Yeah. And uh, Mark's sick. Yeah. I don't have to do this on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Wow. You know, you know what? Then old me would have just charged right through and been uh-huh. like, no, I made a promise. And right. I, they're going to think I'm like scared of coronavirus. Right. And, uh, and I just put all that on hold and said, I don't really feel like doing this it's right so now. It's so good, right? Yeah. And that's, I have only just started in my life acting in accordance with my own best intentions and but, my best wishes. And also just saying no. It's a, it's a weird kind of, I don't know what it is about certain types of people or maybe just people that are have fought it their way through. Uh, and sort of landed in show business in a positive way. But there's always this idea that you will be judged and punished mm-hmm. yeah. if you if you say no. And and that's also, uh, the truth is, no one's really thinking that much about you except for Not yourself. Nobody. Yeah. And it's like, what? so what? You're going to make a publicist upset? It's like, you, and then if you really want to get into it, judge yourself against all the other fucking whack jobs and prima donnas <laughs> that they have to deal with. Yeah. From that particular outlet. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's, you know, no matter how crazy I am, I'm not as bad as some of the things they're dealing <laughs> yeah, with. Yeah. I try to, on I, a talent level, I try to compare and not to project too much. But yeah. I think that being on this show and being in this room with yeah. you is a big deal to me. I think I probably that morning even psyched myself out because you think that, but you said, but they, but you did feel ill. I felt, uh, 
I didn't tell her to tell you that I felt ill, but I felt bad. Oh, oh. so I I was just not feeling on. So there's she, the transparency we needed. Yeah, the, she decided to lie. I know and I'm, say that you felt sick. No, that's a publicist's job. She, uh, she tried to make it the, the the responsibility of the germs and the biology. We were both sick, man. Yeah, maybe she's better for both of us. Yes, exactly. And we I don't also, do it. I also imagined like, man, this guy's sick. Is, is he gonna want to like already? I'm like. Does Mark Marin really want to plunge into every success narrative of the person in front of him that he's talking with? Or does some days he feel like, I don't really feel like digging here or I don't feel like well, doing for, this? Well, for you, though, because, like, you know, I got to, it's really, you know, I don't know what the narrative is really going to be. You know, I just have to figure out for myself what the through line of, of a conversation could be, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for I wasn't that concerned about you but also when i get sick i get a, I'm, I'm actually a little more relaxed oh yeah yeah and and like i do not do drugs anymore or drink but when i'm sick there is a a shift in perception mm-hmm. that's sort of like hey i'm a little fucked up <laughs> i do i do my best acting when i'm sick is if that I, true oh definitely definitely because there's a, a, a an unavoidable vulnerability and you're not trying you don't have the energy to try right yeah. But so do you get sick on purpose to act? Uh yeah, I just have unprotected sex with everybody I can. Oh, that kind of sickness is going to yeah, shift I your... just lick doorknobs. Oh, there you go. Uh no, I there was one for the season finale. There's one day on set where it hasn't I, happened yet. Hasn't happened yet, but there's one day in a Chinese restaurant I shoot this uh Hanukkah dinner or Christmas dinner yeah. in a Chinese restaurant. I was so sick that day. Yeah. And I looked at the footage and I was like, "Oh, Okay, here we go. That's the leveling up here. Yeah, so I do, and I think Nicole Kidman even said something about that. Like she does her best work when she's sick. Uh, as long as your voice doesn't sound yeah. weird and your eyes don't look all fucking sick. Did you know that who was singing in the rain? Gene Kelly. Was yeah. That? Oh yeah, I heard that. Like he yeah, had the flu mm-hmm. or something. Or like a hundred and two fever the day he shot the singing in the yeah. rain. Yeah, I don't know if I could do that. That seems a little more demanding than what you or I do, really. Do you want to train for that yeah, scenario? To, to swing around, <laughs> swing around a lamppost? Yeah, I'd like to be able to do that. You a song and dance dude? No, I wish I was. You could be. You know, we all could be. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, once you have a certain amount of talent, it's really what you want to apply it to. I mean, I I think that what stops me from being a song and dance man is what's uh, stopped me from being huge my entire life. What is that? Fear of looking stupid. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't have to. You don't have to worry about what you look like on a podcast. No, I know so that. That's not... I'm doing a little on camera work. Yeah. But there is that weird. That that's a different type of vulnerability. When I, it took me years to sing in front of people. Mm-hmm. Years. Yeah. And do yeah. You, and you do it now? Yeah, I can do it. Karaoke. I've done um, kind of karaoke, but I've I've actually played with a, a, a combo of sorts, mm-hmm. and you know I've taken opportunities to when people put together evenings of jamming in front of people and have people sing mm-hmm. i'll play and sing i've done that well this is you know i've seen episodes of Marin, and yeah. i've seen and actually i am staying at my friend's house who i will not say who it is but they work at netflix oh yeah and uh, i got to see your special oh you did i got to see your special oh, the, oh, the, end, the end of the world and then I was walking uh, by a cafe and I was thinking about this interview and then there was a neon sign in the uh, business office that said, end of the world. And uh, mine's end times fun. End times fun. 
It felt like it's all about the end. And did you I, enjoy the special? I did, but that was the first time I really got to study your physicality. Oh, yeah. I was like, interesting. He chose the stool. He chose to bring a stool on stage. I'm always in the stool. And you had the boots. Yeah. You have your, your uh, tucking the heel of your boots up yeah. onto oh, the yeah. highest yeah. bar. Yeah. There was a perch. Yeah, a perch for yeah. sure. Yeah. There's a little, there's some arm crossing yes. happening. Yeah. Yep. There's yeah. some like uh, pulling in kind of. Sure. Yeah. Action. Hunched over. Yeah. But then when you got in a roll, like on, like you step up from the stool <laughs> and you move around and you take up more space. Yeah. It was interesting to watch you. That is, uh, that's evolved over many years. Yeah. I've been stooling it for a while. <laughs> that was a conscious decision based on the history of comedy. And what do you, tell me more. Well, there, like there's this idea, that, I, you know, you watch a lot of specials from the 80s and upwards. Uh-huh. Not only will people, um, it's just, there's this idea that you got to run around. You know, that you're, you're in a big theater. You guys move side to side. I did it. But if you really look at some of the great comics, they sat down. Like you, mm-hmm. you know, like Shelley Berman in particular, that there was a time where that was part of the trip. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that, that generation from the 50s and 60s, you know, if they did stand up, they weren't moving around. And a lot of them would sit on the stool and yeah. just talk. And I thought there was an intimacy to that. And if I could make that work in a room of 800 people, that would be something. Oh, yeah. So that was that. I mean, it was a very good special. I think you you. should be very proud. Well, thank you very much. I'm enjoying your work as well. Thank you, man. Yeah, I've watched, uh, I've, I've watched all of, up, I'm up to speed on the new season. I've wor- watched most of the last season, in and out of the first couple. The first season is definitely our growing pains, but I'm glad that, that happens, you got right? to happens, I was very happy to have it happen. I was thinking recently, I'm like, the the pilot episode of yeah. our HBO show yeah. was supposed to be the fourth episode of the show, and maybe it was the weakest episode of the season. I don't think the weakest, but the second weakest of that yeah. season. And I really, I don't know what it is about, this might be illuminating to you as a pointer of how I am as a, a human being, but I try to start with my worst. Like, I like to, I don't know, I don't know if it's testing people, but mm. I like to be like, well, here's the worst that I can do first. On it, purpose, though, or it just I think that it, you, 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 you know it? I don't know. The the one of the best episodes of the season was supposed to be the pilot. It was called Tick. It's about a, a, a two families, and uh, we moved. We switched places. I don't know why that is. I I have the impression that I give uh, not the greatest first impression. I huh. would have thought that when I first met you, I was like, I pro- I feel like I made a bad impression on Mark at the movie theater. Yeah, yeah. I didn't feel like. I don't know. I had that weird moment where I'm like, how do I, I know this guy. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, you're on television. <laughs> oh, I had the moment. And actually in your special, you mm. described the moment of, oh, yeah. Yeah, of yeah. when people meet you and then they're, right. they're telling their friend about who you are. In and, front of you. Yeah. And yeah. I have that. I have that all the time too. I yeah. was like, oh, we have the same perspective on this, uh, this level of uh, no- recognizability that we have in the public where right. people are like, oh, hey, wait. You oh. can actually have very dedicated and uh, passionate uh, fans mm-hmm. who have friends that have no idea who you are. Exactly. It's a, that's, it has a lot to do with the fragmented media landscape. Yeah. You know, like if, you, if, like, if uh, High Maintenance was a popular show on one of the three networks, or even just on HBO when it was only HBO, mm-hmm. there would not be that problem. But then you give people the gift of getting to explain 
your show (laughs) in front of them, which people really like to feel like they're in the know. If anything, we've learned from this uh, Twitter, Facebook, whatever generation. Oh, there's a lot of know-it-alls out there? People love to talk. Yeah, one ad. They like to- uh, Discover. uh, Right, but they like a lot of last worders. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the last word. Yeah, nobody never ends. Everyone's always gonna. There's a lot of like deep geeks and nerds for a lot of different things out there. That's the weirdest thing. I've never been that guy. Me neither. You know, like I don't. I, I investigate and learn enough to be you know proficient and, and and knowledgeable, but I'm not gonna make a life out of it. Would you say you're a person who knows a little bit about a lot of things? Yeah, I mean, there's some things I don't know about, but the things that interest me, I, it's actually been sort of an issue for me lately. Like, why don't I know more like about you know, certain things? But that's just the struggle of life. But my feeling about this meeting was, yeah, I don't know where you come from, man. <laughs> I have a similar background to you. I'm a middle-class Jew from the desert. Come on. Yeah, dude. I grew up in Arizona. Which part? In Scottsdale is where- Did we have this conversation? I don't know, man. You had a Diet Coke. That's what I remember the most. At the movie theater. Yeah. Right, the Diet Coke, but I have family connection in Scottsdale. Go ahead. We didn't talk about that. You uh, remember. So my mother is spent the last 25 years of her career as a cantor in a, in a reform synagogue in Scottsdale. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then my dad was a public school teacher in uh, Arizona. But before that, my mother taught music lessons out of our house. So we would have piano, voice, and guitar students. She was the lady cantor at a reform synagogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where were your parents from originally? They were army brats. They met on Air- Andrews Air Force Base really? in, in Washington, D.C., or outside of D.C. Both of them parents were in the military? Air Both Force. Both of them Jewish? No, my dad did not grow up Jewish. Mm-hmm. He... he you know, knows all the prayers and stuff, but he didn't convert until uh, a couple of years ago. So, but he did convert. He did convert here in at the, the uh, in the last quarter. Yeah, he thought, why not? And then uh, she's she's dead now. But his mother, one time, I joked about him converting around yeah. his mother, and he was like. <laughs> Your dad was like that. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and that gives you another preview of how I was raised. We didn't. We weren't in, in the. In the spirit of transparency, yeah. my family uh, wasn't, you know, they, they were repressed. I would yeah. say it came from, and now I'm only now in my 30s understanding that the military upbringing had a lot to do with that. They Keeping were, secrets, acting, you know. Acting uh, strong. Right. Discipline. Acting strong and discipline, yeah. Both of them? Yeah. But your mom, I would think being a, a cantor at a reform synagogue had at least some sort of... Uh, uh, way of communicating. Sure, but also there's a lot of routine built into that schedule. There's a lot of, you know, she graduated from Juilliard. She wanted to be like a folk singer or a performer. She went to college to because she loved music and she loved the arts. And her Really? Went to Juilliard for all four years? Uh, yeah, I think. So she actually could... went to American University and then she transferred to Juilliard. D.C.? Yeah. And then to Juilliard? That's pretty highfalutin. It was highfalutin. After she got out of school, she went on tour with Andrew uh, with Leonard Bernstein's uh, show Mass. It was like a it was like a choral uh-huh. thing, and she went on tour to with sing him. with him. Mm-hmm. Really? And then they came out of that show experience, and my dad was driving up from getting his education certificate. Uh, to teach out yeah. of University of Maryland. So yeah. he'd drive up every other weekend to come see her in, in New York. And they were trying to decide, should we start a family in Arizona or should we go for it in New York? 
and they chose Arizona. They wow went. gave up the fucking mm-hmm. nightlife and the big dream. And now, and they've been in Arizona ever since. They've been they were in Scottsdale when Scottsdale Road had yeah. like four cars on it an hour. Right. You know, yeah. I I witnessed sprawl growing up. And oh, and it's like one of the great examples of sprawl. It's the I I would say. Chef's kiss of sprawl. The only good thing about sprawl in in uh, in uh, Phoenix and in, in the Phoenix area is that for some reason, either it's a law that they can't they can only paint three colors of mm-hmm. brown. Yeah. So like, they, there's a never ending strip mall, but a lot of times you don't even notice it somehow. It's an I, odd thing. I will say, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright was he Great. was banging around down there, and I think that culture of architecture mm. is exciting if you're an architect. Yeah. I mean, all that space isn't the Biltmore him or mm. a student or mm-hmm. partially him? Yes. And there's some the houses out there. Yeah, yeah. I've always, I always uh, I like Arizona. I like the heat, and for the same reasons that I like um, being sick, because, like because like it it alters my perception because it's so daunting. That if to walk outside uh, and in 110 to 120 mm-hmm. degree heat uh, for any amount of time, eventually you get delirious. Oh yeah, and uh, I kind of like it. I like it for <laughs> the same reason. I think that <laughs> I I I'm drawn to altered states as well. And uh, I rem it, the one thing that really chaps my ass uh, in my childhood is that we didn't go camping at all because we had to be. You know, school Monday through Friday, Shabbat services Friday night that my mother had to go to. Oh, because she had to sing. And then on Sunday was Hebrew school. Yeah. So there was never time to go out into like the Arizona wilderness, which is like astounding. I I didn't go camping until I went with my friends when I was in high school. And then I was like, holy. And then there were- Where'd you guys go? I, I used to like Tucson. My brother went to school in Tucson. Tucson's sweet, man. It is, man. Yeah, I like it. Um, it's like real uh, kind of. There's a lot of cowboy shit in Phoenix. You know, in Arizona, is definitely not. It's not. Uh, it's not Jewish by nature. <laughs> it's definitely some by definitely, infiltration. It's Jewish sure, by infiltration. For sure. You know, wherever the old people who need doctors go. Yeah, or or need to breathe easier. Yes, exactly. But um, but do you did you ever get a sense that your mother was bitter about her choices? I wouldn't say bitter. In fact, I look to her as an example of somebody who has managed to marry their community, their spirituality, and their art into mm. one job. And I really admire that about her her path. Does she see it that way? I think uh, she sees it as... Because I think that's it's a beautiful thing you just said, and it's, it's specifically uh, non-selfish thinking if she is indeed thinking that. I think, like, uh, I come from a family of overachievers, and part of being an overachiever is speaking sometimes harshly to yourself mm-hmm. and saying it's not good enough and having the spirit doing of... doing that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're so we're, we're achieving, man. We're achieving. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like... Uh, when I speak with her and she's the one I, sp- I go deep with fast. Yeah. Like, I'm like, okay, what do you think about dying or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, her feeling is in our philosophical conversations is that she knows all that information, but I don't know that her heart is open enough necessarily uh-huh. to feel it and to really feel a, a, a almost divine satisfaction with what her choices. I and, th- you, and you think that, that that's uh, an issue of... Allowing yourself to experience it on an emotional level. Yes, I think it's a it's a vulnerability. We don't do that in my family, really. We don't. We're we're not. We don't. 
Like, I remember getting to middle school and seeing people, like, kissing and saying I love you and hugging and going over to other friends' houses where people were, like, physically affectionate with their family or mm. th- they were, you know, yeah. felt tight with them. And yeah. I was like, oh, like, that's not just on TV. That's This isn't melodrama. This uh. is actual life. I remember because we would tease each other a lot. Humor and being smart was very valued in our house. But you felt that a lot of that was masking uh, an inability to emotionally communicate. Yes, I or to be vulnerable. I yeah, a lot of coping strategies. But did you feel cared for? Uh, well, am I going to say it on this podcast? Maybe I don't know. I um I felt like the fourth child. I'm I am the fourth child. I am the my sister is nine years older than me. My next brother is seven and years older, and then my closest brother is two years older. So my parents who. I think always battled financial struggles. I mean, I don't think four kids. It's a lot, man. They put a lot on their plate and it was the same kind of thing that I told you about wanting to come here. It's like, Oh, I got to do it because I said I would do it, Mm. you know? And they don't, they didn't exercise. No. Yeah. A lot in their lives. They felt like they had to accept everything as like charity or as a gift or whatever and be thankful and and you know maybe it's not what you really wanted but just be happy or blah 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 and see that's i mean that was a sense i got of you you know in in talking to you now but also just that you know that the if it, that the boundaries are porous yes very <laughs> flexible boundaries i porous <laughs> is a good healthy word flexible is a good one uh, or, I, uh faulty yeah, <laughs> fault. Well, I mean, it's. I think don't you kind of use the a similar strategy with how you get people to open up to you? Is that you offer you offer a sense of openness and vulnerability? Well, sure. I mean, I think I I think, but that was learned in a way. Mm-hmm. But 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 conversely, I generally want to be them. Of so, course. Right. So so whether or not I was vulnerable for whatever years of my life that that you know that I would adapt to who they were you mm-hmm. know, become more like them mm-hmm. you know even almost instantaneous strategy i don't know if it's a strategy but it's a yearning for modeling or for parenting that uh, didn't i didn't have yeah I, and i don't know where do you identify with that or do, are you just understanding me the thing that i um yearn for in terms of what i feel like i missed out on in my childhood is my parents modeling what it looks like to make yourself happy, modeling mm-hmm. what it looks like to go out on a hike and take care of your body. We were had a lot of health issues on my dad's side of things. And I really wish that I witnessed my father uh, take care of himself and do the things that made him happy and not always seem like he was acting out of sacrifice. And the same thing for my mother. Huh. Um, did they, but see, the thing is like, did, but. I don't, sometimes happiness is not the priority. I agree. Sometimes I'm not sure it should be. Sometimes it should be, though. Sure. Not all the time, but sometimes. No, and, I, I think that's true. And to characterize everything as a slog, yeah. to like come home and and be so tired and say yes to helping everybody. Like we also, every grandparent that died would die in our house. You uh, saw them die. Uh, I didn't see anyone die in our house. I witnessed my dad's brother die when I went to the hospital because he, this was in my adult life, but yeah. he, whatever, he got, f- flew over New York and his 
aorta bisected and then he went to Jamaica and then he went to Cornell wide and I was the only one in New York and I went to his bedside and watched him die. But our grandparents, great grandparents died in my house. Um, we were always caretaking. There was, um, I, this is a sensitive topic. So if anybody who's going to get triggered, they should turn off now, but like around we, what? So we Death? took we took a child into my house that my one of my mother's music students, uh, her husband was getting out of jail and she was worried about the welfare of her son. So my mother said, your son can live with us until the smoke clears or whatever. Yeah. So we had a child living with us for a while who was older than my sister. So at least 10 years older than me. Yeah. And when I was three or four, he used to abuse me like in a in a sexual manner. Uh-huh. And. I grew up having this memory of this happening, but forgetting that that kid stayed there. Yeah. Uh, so I asked my brothers, I'm like, hey, I'm not, I'm not mad about this or whatever, but did something weird happen in the bathroom when we were younger? And then they were like, no, no. And then finally we made the connection that this kid was staying with us. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's who that was. Oh, no, shit. That's who that was. So if the answer is do I, did I feel safe, um, I think... Coming to the realization that, well, because the big thing is I didn't, and I was, I made a joke out of it after that. I was like, oh, this just happens to people. Like, you know. Well, that's true, but it's not funny. It's not funny, but I was trying to be stronger than it by making a joke. Yeah, you got to, I mean, how how else do you deal with the, you know, uh, that PTSD? But I didn't want to tell my parents about that until, um in the recent years because I didn't want them to have to feel bad about that happening un- and unbeknownst to them. But I d- what I have been turning over is that they, A, were doing the best they can and B, were trying to help somebody. They were trying to help my mother's music student avoid problems. They didn't understand that they were inheriting the problems of the person that they were trying to avoid through their that person's child and so the father was in prison for that who knows i think he was in prison for assault or murder or something like that but but that being said it's it's confusing on a on the level of trauma and responsibility in terms of the question of safety sort of navigating you know what you do with that trauma you, you know because like you said your parents took on more than they could handle really yeah and that and that they sacrificed sort of the 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 safety or at least the emotional attention that they should have been given to to all of their children they well the question was um you're why are you trying to help this other kid when you have a kid of your own right here who has never been camping or like and it and it kind of continued on like my mother would do every kids bar mitzvah in the community Mm. we were attached to a community right and every friday night and saturday morning there was an ushering of this kid into adulthood yeah and i got that one weekend right (laughs) (laughs) but uh also my mother taught voice piano and guitar and i think when i was younger she tried to teach me piano and i was you know a kid and not responsive to those lessons and she tried to have me learn piano through another uh, teacher and i just wasn't I my finger hand eye coordination is not my strongest suit, so 
there was no trying to teach me guitar. There was no more lessons for right. me. I taught myself guitar. I t- the music was a huge thing in our family. Yeah. And we all are so independent. All of the four of us are so wildly independent that we would teach ourselves things and educate ourselves. There wasn't so much support of one another, which is so... I think that my parents will probably be heartbroken to hear this, but I, it's it's just kind of how the chips fell, and I think they're a really wonderful parents, and I and I love them so much, but I don't think I felt safe. I think I felt like I was on my own, especially when my the health problems came when I became twelve or thirteen. There, my father had like a myriad health problems that lasted through high school, so I I felt like I was raising my self and uh, developed a myriad coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms during that time, which uh, I'm very lucky to have the wherewithal to to look at them for what they really are. I, I experienced a, a similar thing in that, like, there's certain questions in my head about the, a period of time when um, my folks, when we lived in Alaska, my dad was in the service and there was some, you know, some something happened with some babysitter mm-hmm. and I'm not clear what, what you know, like I, I, I know that something bad happened mm-hmm. and I know, and we, we told on him, you know, and we were able to, to do that, but I, it's not completely clear, but I, I do know that they stepped up and you know, and they, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. It's just so fucked up about, you know, and then you, you realize why parents are so scared is that these impulses of these older kids you know who the fuck knows, but but would but in terms of the self parenting thing, which I'm a little hung up on, um, for my own life, mm-hmm. that my parents were just kind of you know self involved really, mm-hmm. uh, and because of that, I don't feel the appropriate closeness that one should have with a parental bond. You know, I it seems like y- you feel some of that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. When you came out on your special and people are clapping for you and the first thing you said out there was like, I don't know how to take love in or yeah, I don't know right. how to I'll try to love. let you love me. Yeah. Yeah. I felt, I really felt for you in that moment. And I feel that often. I feel very much that, um, the, that it's hard for me to take compliments, although privately I'm so hungry for them and so hungry for, uh, attention and validation, but when it's there in front of my face, or when somebody like this person who texted me before I came to your show, or like a lot of my relationship issues mm-hmm. are just me like accepting that this person loves me and holding that and sitting with that and not running away because it becomes too much or too overwhelming. So you have to you have to practice that. You mean it is a practice. So, but the but I've been able to track the fact that most of that is because of self-parenting that, you know, that I, I don't know how to receive it because I was not trained in that way. Yeah. And, and that my self-parenting coping mechanisms were actually, you know, necessary, but bad parenting Mm -hmm. that I was badly parenting myself Yeah. because I assumed there must've been something wrong with me. And have you reparented yourself and you know that you're great and all that? (laughs) Some days. Yeah. I think you're great. I I appreciate that. I really love this thing that you've been doing for a while. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I I think you're great as well. Mm -hmm. It it took me, uh, you know, there's something that you do that, you know, to make yourself available as a conduit Mm -hmm. for these stories and also to sort of wrangle what you wrangle creatively and also take care of, you know, the types of personalities 
that you explore on your show over these seasons, like I was talking to uh, to Frank in there, that you know what you do is it's it's a very diverse, all embracing, very forgiving and accepting space you create with the stories that you have on the show. No one, I don't think there's any single show that captures you know what contemporary diversity really looks like on all levels than than your show. Well, I won't accept that because I don't know how to accept that compliment, but I'll take it. Do you know I, what I'm saying? I, listen, I think the best- I'm talking about gender. I'm talking about ethnicity. I'm talking about age. I'm talking about emotional diversity. I think you are also complimenting my, my colleagues a lot in this statement. Sure. And I think that uh, specifically Katya, my ex and, and co-creator and, and present collaborator, uh, I think that she is so sensitive to the ills of other populations of like I I she is very uh awakened in her uh sensitivity to those people who are not being represented. She came from the casting world, so she is very aware of representation and uh and a lot of the people I work with, we have an extremely queer set. Um, a lot of the people who work with us, the, the most department heads are women. We have like pretty left, pretty left up in that place. And it was her guidance to make it not a show about a weed dealer, but to make it a show about the people to whom he delivers. Did you like that grammar? And, uh, it was nice to follow her lead on that and be like, because I do want to express myself. I do want to be like, I am feeling, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And- uh, I think you do, though. We do, we do, but we, most of my personal emotions get lived out under the skin of somebody else's situation or somebody else's but identity. But it's essentially your, um, you know, porous boundaries, and you're, you're almost- uh, you know, that you have to almost, you know, fight your own empathy to maintain your sense of self. Yes, <laughs> for sure. And I'm, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm super into meditation right now. I listen to mm -hmm. Sam Harris every day. Um, I am trying to shrink my ego to the lowest possible need. You know what I mean? We need, I define ego as anything that separates us from the great totality. Any, my ego is made up of my likes and my dislikes. It's made up of my identity. The uh, great totality. The great totality. Mm, yeah. So you separate your ego from the great totality. Well, your ego separates it's right. anything separate. I am. I get it. From the great totality. So the last vestige of the ego is, you know, or, or, or the, the primary function of the ego is sort of like, if we're not careful, this great totality will crush us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. If, but if you open up and accept the great totality as you being part of it, and it's a beautiful, enlightening thing, then, then you know, then that shield is gone. Yes, exactly. Mm. So let's go back to, because I don't know where you come from in show business and like how that all started. But before we go there, like in retrospect, in dealing, again, uh, trigger alert, in dealing with, with the sexual abuse and the trauma of that at that age, what did you find once you mined that and and understood it and contextualized it and felt did you go through a period of of 
grieving what you lost through I, that trauma? A little bit. Um, how did it, I guess my question is, how did it affect your life you know, in that chunk of time before you realized the impact of it? What part of your personality you're like, that's, that's a reaction? I think a fear of being alone mm. was a huge, I think that had to, a lot to do with it. I, it's not a, a total fear, but a, a a sense that if when I was by myself that there was it it wasn't all right. Mm. There was a feeling that I needed to fill. Someone was going to come in and and not even maybe that, but oh yeah, but just a general unsafe a, a general unsafe mm. feeling. And you know, I can I can push boundaries. I think that people have described hanging out with me as fun, but sometimes challenging. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> I used to do a joke about, uh, about, uh, the blurbs for my, my comedy draining. <laughs> <laughs> I felt a little drained at the end yeah. and fun times. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think my probably I coped with it by always trying to be funny, by trying to be strong, and by trying to be uh, in control right, uh, that, yeah, yeah. of of situations. There was a threat both by because of how you were brought up and because of that of of uh, a, a sort of nebulous threat to to vulnerability. And I think one of the reasons that I like altered states and that I probably veer towards addictive. Uh, tendencies uh-huh. is because in those moments I don't feel the need to have that control. Mm. You know, I yeah. I am off the hook yeah. for the so, time. So, what was the journey to to show business? Because, like, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, your show's not a comedy per se. You know, really, and I can't sort of associate you with the creators I know, but you're not you're not making a drama, you're not making a procedural. You're doing something in the wheelhouse of many of the people I've known, but you, I don't know where you come from uh, creatively. What was the development there? Okay, I'll start probably at age 18. I went to Oberlin College. Now my, my niece went there. Is that a, it's sort of a liberal arts, got, but it's got a pretty powerful hippie Cap- contingent? Capital L liberal. Right. It was this beautiful bubble with which to explore the elasticity of your, of your paradigm by really being able to go out far left and you know my freshman year i had a gender neutral bathroom we were talking about everything we're talking about today mm. everything was well, my well, orientation well, started, consent consent culture everything it Cancel all started culture. right that all started with you know lefty 18 year olds yeah you know blogging about feminism and this was during but i was shielded from bush times because i was there at oberlin so was it like a, it was almost um a, a uh, experimental lifestyle. In a way, but it was a lifestyle that very much fit where I was already going. And I kind of was a contrarian. Before that, I went to a public high school in a red state, and I was like, you know, willing to wear dresses, willing to mm, go against the willing grain. Willing to or wanting to, did you? I mean, like, what what was your high school like? I wanted did attention, you? and I was getting attention by acting, uh, by acting really So that was it. So fourth kid... Of oh, emotionally yeah. distracted parents <laughs> yeah. going to high school in a dress. Yeah, or I, I wore like uh, 
you know, I was a very involved in the Jewish community, but I was also kind of like, you know, that, that was uh, Jewish youth group culture is a lot about... B'nai B'rith or B'nai... Uh, Nifty, yeah. National Federation of Temple Youth. Okay. So, Oh, that's the reform version? Yeah. Like, you know, there was a high overachieving thing, but also all of my other brothers and sisters had claimed the safe ways of getting attention, like getting good grades or being well-behaved. Yeah. And I sought my identity in the opposite of what they were doing. Well, what were you doing creatively other than... the, the Cost, uh, marching, marching band, show choir, marching band. Uh, uh, no every play, every musical, debate team, social debate? youth, NHS. Really, uh, I did everything. I did everything I could. Everything that you could do to because I didn't want to be alone. Yeah, that involved people looking at you or being around other people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, marching band. You really and choir. You really meld. You go into it. But yes, I was. I was developing a showmanship there. Yeah, but also you were developing, uh, you know, like, for me, you know, I I wanted to be around other people, but eventually I would push them away. Like, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know if I was using them or, you know, trying to figure out who I was or whatever, but I didn't stay long. Mm -mm. Do you know what I mean? I'm not, I was not, you know, and as it leveled out, I was not an ensemble player. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a team player. You know, I chose a solitary profession. Mm-hmm. You're a poet also in that way. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah, there's a distance of and commenting that is built in to right. that. Yeah, but you like immersed yourself around other people and found yourself there. Yes, and mm-hmm. there was a bit of, um, I think at, at, at that time of my life, I was aware of the social climbing and the um, ability to get the attention of a bunch of people and started even thinking about it quite scientifically. But it seems like the areas that you chose to express yourself in were people who were marginalized by mainstream culture and jock culture. And and so, Mm -hmm. you know, so you were already part of the other, you know, in that sense, not the other in sense of ethnicity, but the other in sense of, 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 uh, the status quo. Of course. Right. Always looking, always looking to occupy that space. Yeah. So I came to Oberlin. It was I was waitlisted everywhere else and in Oberlin because uh-huh. I made like a funny, I made like a funny essay for college entrance that yeah. people I guess didn't think was funny. And I ended up going to Oberlin, and I had never gone there. I knew nothing about it, and it turned out that it was exactly that space that I was occupying what in high year? school. Two thousand two, I went, and then two thousand six, I was out. So I did nine eleven in high school was like, oh my God, are we going to get drafted or whatever? And yeah. then uh, I just moved to the, not far, I politically I wasn't left. I, I mean, I was definitely, but I wasn't like radical about politics. I did feel strongly that- like, Right, you weren't you weren't dug in, you were more about you. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you knew what you identified with and, the, and the, the, the tone of it, but you didn't know the, you weren't a wonk. No. Or somebody who was fighting for a particular cause. And when I went to Oberlin, I found myself being contrarian to the left, being like, you know, that when everybody is, I just, I wanted to be different than everybody else. Always. I found myself balancing that out. So I definitely have a fascination with the marginalized, with the different, with the... Uh, with the people who are not usually in the spotlight mm. in that community or, or what have you. Because you wanted to be one of them. Yes. And then, <laughs> yes. And then I'm obsessed with community, I think. And then in, uh, I 
went became a theater and dance major there, and I got really into Chekhov. I got so into Chekhov. A dance major? Theater and dance. That's just what they, they group it oh, together. Oh, did you do dance? Yeah, I did a year of ballet. I did some modern dance there. I've been to contact improv things. I love to dance. In yeah. fact, I was in show choir in high school, and I really, I think that was one of the most important creative uh what is show choir? It's like jazz hands and glitter vests and cummerbunds oh, uh, and, you okay. know, like yeah. medley. My, we did a Miami Sound Machine medley, and ever since then I've been I, – I, I really so love I moved, to sing and dance. Oh, <laughs> man. Mark, I think it would be actually pretty entertaining <laughs> to see you join a show choir in L.A., the East L.A. Yeah? Yeah, I think you would really like – Ira Glass does it. He loves to dance, man. He joined a dance group in uh, New York, and I was like, really? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, he seems to be uh, having a fairly, uh, a kind of a, 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 a just post-middle-age rebirth of sorts. Definitely. He, his <laughs> hair grew out, for his sure. His hair grew out, he's got a new relationship. <laughs> yeah, he's doing, you know. I like them. He introduced me to my current girlfriend, which is, uh, he's has a special place in my heart. And you well, you did a whole episode revolving around uh, this American Life it's crew. True. It's true. I wanted. I thought it was a great. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm. We're jumping around. I'll get back to so check. show hands. So you're at Oberlin. I'm and, at check. And, I get into Chekhov. I yeah. go to Russia to study Chekhov because I love it so much. I go to Williamstown Theater Festival because they used to have great Chekhov plays there with Nico Sakharov. What was it about Chekhov that so grabbed you? I think uh, he's all about life is meaningless and full of meaning at the same time. He's really paradoxical in his Quitodian fascination Mm. with the banal. I think when I read it, I remember thinking, oh, you mean a bunch of... middle uh, upper middle class people talking about how someone should fix all the problems and no one does anything the whole time and they're just bored like it just felt like what does quotidian mean every day oh, okay yeah I like it yeah uh la pan quotidien mm-hmm. uh so i loved it i went to russia i had a bad time in russia i think i got too drunk often cuz that's a real thing over there mm. i went to his grave chekhov's grave and drunk? i I think I had something, but I wasn't drunk. (laughs) And then I was did a little rubbing with the crayon, and I had a rough time in Moscow. We were there in the winter, and I what you were depressed? I was depressed. Yeah. And then I went to Chekhov's grave. Do you come from Russian people? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Odessa. Well, Ukrainian, but the other. Me too. My uh, great grandfather had nightmares after watching Fiddler on the Roof when that pogrom breaks up the wedding. Pale of settlement. Yeah. Belarus. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, that a lot of the Russian Jews come from the Pale of Settlement. Mine, mine, some of mine came from uh, Galicia, which is was Ukraine. Yeah. Belarus is a wild place. I haven't been there, but I hear it's. Oh yeah. I hear it. Minsk is. Mm. They 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 love Russia. They're like, why can't we be Russian again? Oh yeah. Yeah yeah. I think a lot of people crave that. Yeah, here, daddy here too. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be what's happening. I know. Um, okay, so you're at the grave. I'm at the grave. I mean, the momentum is gone from this story, but I think I expected to feel something at Chekhov's grave. Yeah, and I felt nothing, and I was like, "This is the most Chekhovian moment of my life." <laughs> this is exactly what he would have written, and I walked away. That was from the it. end of that. That was the end of that. I walked out of that gra- that graveyard, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I kind of left theater. I came out to. I've graduated school. I came that out was the to- end of theater. 
not the end, but close to the end. I went. Wow. To, I went to. Uh, I went to. I got out of college. I went to L.A. for like nine months. Uh, I had some friends who were doing okay here. Who had and my brother was a writer's assistant here. And is he in show business too? I have two brothers in show business. One is a writer on Chicago Med, yeah, the Dick Wolf Project. And uh, my other brother is general counsel at UTA. He's like the lawyer at UTA. That's a big deal. They're all, yeah. What's yeah. your sister do? She is a uh, nurse. Pra- she was like went through nursing and became like a nursing, essentially a public health professor mm. at ASU. So she's okay. very involved. And she ran for Congress in Phoenix. A con- she had a congressional bid that she didn't eventually get. But yeah, we all are overachievers. We all want it. We all want the prize. So that's good. So you come out here for six came months? Came out here, I did, you know, probably wouldn't have a good time anywhere, but this place can be pretty lonely and, oh, yeah. and where you don't want to be mat- lumped, lumped in with Not the Not as masses. bad as Moscow, though, huh? Nothing's really as bad as Moscow. <laughs> yeah. Nothing really is, I can honestly say. Um, and then uh, I had a Blue Man Group callback. I auditioned for Blue Man Group, and they were like, "You're you can drum. You're pretty interesting. You got a good shaped like, head." You, yeah, it seems like you were the. <laughs> actually, that was if you were to really look at your training and interest, Blue Man Group probably would have nailed it. Yeah, marching band meets show choir, uh, meets meets wanting attention. Yeah. Uh, so I went out for a long callback for Blue Man Group. Did they have to put the blue on you? Got blued up. <laughs> <laughs> I and the three of us. There were three guy, two other guys I was with, and we were auditioning for the guy who, one of the creators who was trying to select the next blue man. And I, I think rem- I talked to a blue man. Yeah, someone who like it was surprising that he was a blue man, but he was a blue. I can't remember who. Go ahead. It's yeah. a good, it's a sweet job, but yeah. bl- blue handcuffs they pay a lot and. <laughs> And you, you get health coverage? Yeah, I yeah, probably blue cross blue shield. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. That was quick. Um but I didn't make it. I I I apparently non-verbally yelled uh with uh, two f- uh what are they called the flight those f- flashlights that oh, the um, oh. air traffic yeah, yeah, dudes yeah, yeah, yeah. use. Yeah. They have a whole thing with that and I guess I banged them too hard together to get this guy to clap. You non-verbally yelled. Uh, he goes, "Stop yelling at me." And I didn't yell. I was just I banged these two things together like Was that a revelatory moment that you've been non-verbally yelling for how long? How long, Ben? Uh <laughs> I don't think it was relevatory because I was like, he caught me. He caught <laughs> he caught me doing that thing yeah, I do yeah. again. And after that, I knew I didn't get it, and I went out and I got a knish from one place, and you then I went shimmels. to another place and I got some combos from a Dwayne Reed, and then I went to New a, York. Yeah, and then I got a pizza. Yeah, and then I overate, which is what I do. I call it bodega crawls, where mm. I get stressed and then I go from one bodega to another, just getting a lean, snack. Though. Thank you, bro. Thank you. Uh. And then I stayed in New York after that. And then I went up to Columbia. I So the not, the the LA thing was not eventful. 9 months worked at Kendall's Brossery under the Mark Taper Forum and the Dorothy Chandler. I was a waiter for a while one night. I uh wasn't tipped well and I I chased the people out and I was like, "Come on, man." And then I got fired and I was like, "Sounds right." Mm. Sounds like it's time to leave LA. Mm. So, it all coincided. And then I've been in New York for about a dozen or more years. So, all right. So in college, the arc was, you know, uh, education, self-discovery, creative education, drugs. Mm-hmm. Drugs the whole time, throughout the whole Drugs. Through high from, school? Drugs from 
age 13, 14 till now. Yeah. What it, What do you land on with the drugs? What's your pot? Take? Yeah, that's it. And I'll do psychedelics mm, quarterly. So that you're one of those tune-up guys. Tune-up. I, I like to tune-up. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think uh, I had a rebirth. I didn't do psychedelics quarterly again until I was in my 30s. I took like a break in my, uh, like a 10-year break. But you still, then. you believe that this is the way? No. Mm. I believe it's probably something I'll be fiddling around with my whole life of how how much to embrace or deny myself. Drugs. Drugs, yeah. Altered states, really, I call them. Well, how does... So you're in New York. Are you are you performing? Are you going out for auditions? So I go, I go to New York. Yeah. I start messing with the Columbia Directing MFA program. They need actors with which to practice directing. So mm. I start building my creative community out of there. While this is happening... As an actor. As an actor. I'm, I couch surfed for about a year. Mm. Got an apartment. Good friends. Got a, well, I learned how to, what is it, uh, companies like Fish, they stink, stinks after three days. Yeah. So I learned that fast. Yeah. And then I found an apartment that had bed bugs. Mm. And then at the time I moved into that apartment, I was giving up acting to become a New York teaching fellow. And I did the training for teaching fellows. Does it bed bugs make you crazy person? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it makes you crazy. New York bed bugs, oh. Blue Man Group, all of that makes you a crazy person. Oh. Uh and then but I driven, not lost. Very driven. Well, what happened is one day I was hanging out with my driven good, and lost. I've never even thought it, of that combination. Yeah. Dri- uh you can be all oh, of yeah. those things. Yeah. Uh my f- I was sitting at my friend Lou's house and Lou and I had joked. It, this was like the beginning of Derek comedy, the beginning of YouTube really. YouTube came out as I was coming out of college. Yeah. And my this democratized filmmaking was just hitting the ground, and my friend's friend was running a Diet Mountain Dew spec commercial contest. Yeah, and my friend Lou and I, Lou had just bought a camera. We were like, we can try, we can make this happen. And I had learned how to edit a little bit from trying to get my acting reel together. So. We made this commercial for Diet Mountain Dew, and we got it. We we won. So I made the next two years of my life about making low-budget commercials and then uh, identifying commercial contests that had low entries and then flooding that commercial contest with my videos. Yeah. So while this was happening, I couldn't afford rent, so I agreed to be a th- live in a theater and take out the garbage and kill the mice for about a year and i took which a- theater it's this little black box in the bottom of kipps bay called the richmond shepherd theater mm. 26th and 2nd near bellevue hospital slept on a futon in the lobby it was a really weird time of life i was working in a cheese shop to pay off a credit card bill i quit the teaching program because i was like wow i'm really not well suited for this everybody's going to lose if i do this so you're sweeping on the floor eating cheese and bread yeah that you taken from the store yeah and trading that cheese for other goods with friends uh cheese and bartering cheese cheese and theater sp- and rehearsal space i'd be like okay you can come here in 10 and we can do this, but you got to help me work on my commercial. Oh, I was, so you had the run of the place. Yeah. During the day. At, at When the theater, when the show was done, like whatever they were doing, I would invite my friends over. We would put on all the costumes, play with the lights, do a Phil Collins dance party. Yeah. 
on stage two nights a week. My the guy who owned the theater, who was a mime in his eighties, who yeah, he was such an interesting guy. Um, his ex-wife would sleep on the stage on a piece of foam two nights a week. So we had to. And you were in the lobby. And I was in the lobby on a futon. Why was she there with two nights a week? Because she was a birthday performance, a children's birthday performer, and she had a Dora the Explorer costume and an Elmo costume. Right. And she kept those up, and we also dressed in those and and danced in those as well. But why still, why she sweep there? Because she had a place in Bridgeport, Connecticut. That oh, she so was, she had to put on the show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she had to oh, go see, and put I on see. the show and, and, and do it. Wow, that life in the theater, man. Yeah. An 80-year-old mime that no one knows who owns a theater space. In the bottom of a like a, basically housing project. Yeah, it was just a really wild. Specifically New York, but see, sort of it informs the possibilities of the show. Oh, yeah, dude. That I, re- I remember sleeping there watching the shadows of the rats crawling up the grating that the street light was pushing yeah. through the window and remember thinking, wow, this is, I'm going to look back on this and think this was the most romantic time of my life. The most, I knew going into it, I'm like, this is what this time is for. Ratatouille came out during that time or a little after and mm. I was like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm doing the exact same thing. But just to meet those personalities as well. Of course, <clears throat> of course. You know that that they, there's something about I think the show and, and seemingly about your experience with New York that really kind of gets where you know where New York's at now, and it's still this weird, thriving, almost unexplainable community of of, of incredibly diverse humanity, and and I think that you know you see you used to see it more mm-hmm. before people had to leave. Yeah. Yeah, which is like, you know, why Brooklyn is Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. But I mean, but at the time you were there, maybe it was already starting to happen. But like when I was there in the 80s, you know, people could still afford to live there of all different kinds. So you had all of that weird ass theater stuff. I also got to New York right as the recession hit, Mm. which was, again, not unlike when I uh, separated on Trump's election day. I also got into like the 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 least skilled portion of my life, my years after college in New York, when everybody lost their jobs too. You know yeah. what I mean? So it did feel like there was this spirit of, uh, I know I'm I did everything right and it still didn't work out. So I'm just gonna fuck it and do what I want now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was the prevalent attitude when I was making those videos. Right. I was like, oh, this is democratized filmmaking. I don't, I can just make a thing and I don't have to ask permission. I can say fuck and show a dick and an asshole on the internet and and it doesn't matter. Louis C.K. had come out with Louis not too long after, which was this auteur comedy thing. And it was that, it really was the moment of a populist uprising in in content creation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it began. For me, that's where it began. I learned how to make things fast and good. Uh, sorry, cheap and good, not yeah. fast. You yeah. fast, cheap, and good. You pick two. Yeah, I picked cheap and good. And how did um, the early, you know, YouTube versions of high maintenance evolve? Well, I met my ex-wife Katya in L.A. I had just won a contest out here. I was seeing family. I was feeling like hot. A commercial sh- contest. Mm-hmm. For how many of those did you win? That was my salary. I was really taxed very poorly. I shouldn't have done it, but it was my salary for two years. Yeah, Hmm. I made a couple of tens of thousands of dollars over two years after it. Not enough to live on, but enough to just by winning commercial. Enough to feel good about inside. 
Um, Commercials for what? Would people know them? Nissan Cube, uh, Diet Mountain Dew is one, Sun Chips, Compostable Bag. Um, yeah. Wow. You really had it figured out an angle, huh? Oh, yeah. That was the angle. It was my film school. Yeah. I was just like, all right, what's the assignment? Okay, they want this. Okay, so if I can just ask this person to do this, and maybe if you shoot it like this, and then I'll edit it. The editing was the most powerful tool right. I, that I gained through there. Editing is everything Wow, for me. So, okay, so you meet Katya. What, did you I'm, go in for a role? Katya was... She had worked on 30 Rock as a casting assistant mm. for a couple of years. She was changing her life and moved from New York to LA to kind of try something else. Not she, casting. In the working in the NBC oh. casting office, but not on 30 Rock. Okay. And I met her via my brother who lives out here, works in Chicago Med and his wife. They his wife is an actress. She was actually in the first ever high maintenance. Her name is Bridget Maloney Sinclair. I love her so much. And Katya was a fan of Bridget's as an actress. And then Katya moved out to L.A. And Bridget's like, let's be friends. And they started hanging out. Mm -hmm. And Bridget and and Dan, my brother, were trying to set Katya up with their friend Alex from college, who I'm also friends with. I was in town. Alex was like, come over and hang out at this party. I'm dating this woman. Mm. And then I went to that party. Uh, I was sleeping on my friend Mike's couch at the time Mm -hmm. here. And but still feeling like hot shit because I won two thousand dollars. Yeah, and then that was fifty percent taxed. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then I met Katya, and she was a functional stoner. I was a functional stoner, and then there was like a magnet. I think looking back on it, we realized uh, there was this creative spark in both of us that fell in love with each other at that moment. And I feel like there was sexual attraction there too. There was everything that goes into it. We were just, it was one of those moments. Mm. And this was around my almost 25th birthday. She's six years older than me. So mm. I was like, wow, this cool woman kind of likes me. What's going on? This And, uh, and this was, th- she is probably the first time in my life where I was feeling very unstable. I just moved out of the theater. This woman was into me. I was on my way to do the the Tempest at my alma mater at Oberlin for the summer theater thing. And I just- Back in the theater. Back in the theater. That was the last play I ever did. Uh-huh. Before this one I'm doing up in J- June, which I'm excited about. But uh, I I was like, all right, I'm signing on to this person. This is the first person that I'm going to let take- um, honestly, she took care of me in those times. I was all I was sleeping on couches. I was living in a theater. I was like, from a non-romantic point of view, out of control. You know what I mean? Or without a net, flying without a net. And but you sort of uh, okay, right? But you weren't. You're not a boozy guy. Boozy? No, it wasn't about booze. You were just sort of like un unformed. Yes. and high. And she ident. <laughs> and she identify. I she her. Uh, God-given talent is to identify potential and she still does it and I feel like she identified my potential at that time and then she was willing she was like uh, maybe I was amused to her maybe I was uh, I don't know what I was to her but I do feel like I jumped into that in a a way that I haven't ever jumped into anything before Mm. which was just let her catch me mm. so you let your you you let your your guard down you opened your heart mm-hmm. mm. for the first time 
probably the first time it was my 25th birthday we were married and then we were married like a year and a half after that and what when did the creative uh partnership begin well, when she came to visit me at Oberlin that summer, she was like, maybe I should be your manager. Like, what should I do? Uh-huh. She was trying to figure out, like, what we should do together. And then... Business-wise. Business-wise. And then after we moved in together, we moved back to New York together. We uh, realized that we had... Uh, I had even said, fuck acting. I'm going to do... Brooklyn? S- Brooklyn. I I said, fuck acting. I want to do something that matters. So I got into composting big time. I tried to start a compost pickup service in New York that would, uh, with a bicycle-powered delivery mechanism and decentralized compost heaps all over the... I really wanted to do something that wasn't acting. But... Wait, now, let me ask you about that, because acting does feel like sort of... Um... Uh, there's something about acting that, mm, that if you're a certain type of person that makes you feel like, like I'm getting away with murder here and I'm not doing much to help anybody. Yeah. <laughs> also coming from being yeah. with a casting director, she went back to work on 30 Rock and mm-hmm. I got to see from the other side of things how little agency an actor has, especially in it's TV and the film. the worst. It's, I don't know how they do it, dude. I don't know either, man. How do they fucking do that day to day? I don't know. They must really want it. Or, or I guess, or, or I, it's a certain type of delusional. I mean, but, I guess they really want it, but I mean, how much rejection can you take? And at what point do you realize, like, I don't, I don't even like talking like this, but it's just like, <laughs> at what point do you realize, like, I can't, it's not, you know, I got to do something else. Yeah. I mean, that's what I did at that time. Mm-hmm. I was like, I got to do something else. Like, this can't be just it. Yeah, this can't be the life. So my compost company was going middling to okay, but I was still making videos. I was doing bar mitzvah videos. I was doing... Really? Yeah. So, and she was okay with this? Yeah. She was like, all right, I'm going to go to my job and then you're going to, f- you're finding it out. Gonna, I was 25, 26, 27. You're you know composting, I mean? you're shooting videos at bar mitzvahs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I, and she, she identified a potential that was trying to figure itself out, I guess. Hmm. And then when we got married, six months after we started writing the first time maintenance. But how, what was, what was the sit down discussion though? Like what, wh- whose idea uh, it's, was it because a weed dealer came over? Yeah, we would order weed a lot. We were we were like true blue stoners. Yeah, uh, I was also working at a plant shop, so I would deliver plants and and flowers to people's apartments in Brooklyn, and then I would stay there to plant the thing in the pot in their apartment, and I would talk with them, and I kind of created the persona of the guy while doing that because I was very happy. I was just married. Mm. I didn't have this acting monkey on my back of feeling like shit. I was like, oh, actually, I don't need that. I, I'm I'm fine without that world. Mm-hmm. And I was just uh, feeling like I was doing something that was mo- not more important than just being in somebody's play or movie. Mm-hmm. So I felt really good. And I had a very optimistic attitude. And this was 2000 and uh, Obama times. We, yeah. were, we were in Obama now. Yeah. So... Uh, I felt very optimistic and, uh, that summer we were also watching six feet under and party down. And, you know, in the beginning of six feet under, there's somebody dies. Yeah. We were like, that's a show. Yeah. Like right there, just on the web, just like a little short story where, you know, something's going to happen, you know, this person's going to die and then they do. Uh, we thought about just isolating that moment and making a web series mm. that was like, you know, a weed deal is going to happen, but we don't know how it's going to happen and we don't know who it's going to be mm. when we dropped into that world. 
And then I think we were biking around Brooklyn. I remember the day we were biking around Brooklyn and we started talking about this weed delivery show. And Mm -hmm. then I remember we would have long silences in between talking to each other, riding bikes next to each other. And I I think it formed on one of those bike rides. And so you just started doing short episodics. Yeah, we invited Bridget, my sister-in-law, to come to New York and do this with us. And I, my friends were in MFA programs at NYU, and we were like, hey, you want to help make this with us? Yeah. And then about we released the first one in uh, August of, or November of 2012, coincidentally, a week after weed was legalized in Colorado and Washington. Mm-hmm. So kids A week after? Yeah. We didn't even know that was on the ballot. Now, but, but didn't that reality become a threat after a certain point? People keep asking us, what are we going to do when weed's legalized? I've been getting that question for five years. I figured. Yeah, yeah, but it's not legal in New York yet. No, that's what I mean. That's a, but that, yeah. So, yeah, when it's legal, we'll figure it out. But well, yeah, but you might have, <laughs> it might have been the run of it anyway. Yeah. Right? Who can say? I don't know. I mean, there's still people that prefer it. To get by it illegally? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, to buy it from somebody who's going to come over. I definitely am very skeptical about big business coming into weed and ruining the whole... Well, well, not just big business, but whether big business comes in or not, it's developing a new big business. Mm -hmm. And with a new big business comes big business thinking. Yeah. So, like, I don't know if it's it's a it's a new paradigm. I don't know if how how much the old paradigm is getting involved in it. But, but there are classic there are classicists who really want to keep that old paradigm going. Sure. And if you've been buying weed illegally for some time now, and now there's a legal way that only the people who haven't been arrested for weed dealing are do- like, why would you change over the legal way when you've been doing it illegally? to success for years anyway it's yeah. like you're gonna do illegal in the past you're gonna do it illegal now it's i would still huh. it's like the same risk i guess know? so i guess yeah but okay so how many episodes did you do online we did 19 total well we did 13 online how long were they self-funded like with the, six ten, minutes yeah. six minutes to 12 minutes uh-huh. those were yeah we then be, right before we made our 10th they're still up there right they're on HBO now. Everything's on HBO. All the stuff you did on YouTube is yeah. now off? It's off off, off Vimeo. We did it with Vimeo. Oh, okay. Uh, so we had a deal with FX to make a TV show briefly, and and it was clear that they didn't watch the show or weren't fans of the show, but for some That's reason- interesting. So you did it with Vimeo, so you were able to get it. Yeah. Because like, I think it's kind of tricky to get your shit back on oh, YouTube. Oh, we are- Please, uh, if anyone's listening who is like, "Oh, that's how I'm going to do it," the way that we did it is an anomaly, and it's and it we got very lucky. We are very to lucky get your shit back because we were able to maintain the rights because we had made the thing already. The thing already existed as yeah. it was the web series. So while we were stuck in development at, at FX, I was like, "Hey, can we still make web series shows?" And they were like, "Oh yeah, we don't care, whatever." So I was like, all right, now we're going to make stuff that they'll never let us make when we go to FX, if we ever go there. So we started making, we really started testing our own filmmaking ability there. And the limits. And we made episodes called Cossum, Matilda, and Rachel. And I think those are, to this day, some of our best work. Because we had this thing of being like, hey, I'm going to show you. We had the I'll show you mentality of like, actually, here's what you can do when you're not dealing with commercials. Well, it seems like the the, the sort of context you've created really enables you to do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. 
The format is the best part of the show. Is in, the format. In that, like, like I, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. Like, it it's essentially an anthology show. Oh, it's absolutely. But it's not though, you know, because you, you know anthology shows by and large don't really work. Certainly not for four seasons. You, you know, but you are the thread and the city is a character and you made the country a character as well. And we have, we try to reflect life as it is. We try to tease out my character and try to give you little bits and pieces uh, because he's the only through line at it. At, but we also recognize that the success of the show is the format, which is to say there is a, a format, but yeah. not much. It's just this the weed deal, right? But also, but but like it's not unlike you know directors have claimed that you know environments are characters. <laughs> so you, you know, but but that's true. It is that, true that the consistency uh, mostly Brooklyn, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and just that you really feel that that because of the nature of the way people live is that there is no place like New York. No. Well, I'm trying to get this this format going in non-English speaking cities as well. I'm working on Mexico City right now. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And I want to see how that goes, but I would love to So see you would sell the the sh- the format. format. Mhm. Yeah. Huh. I love to tra- traveling is, you know, who doesn't like to travel? I guess people don't like to travel. But I every time I go to a city, I'm like all right, what has high maintenance work here? Like, how does yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's yeah. Who create the thread? Mm-hmm. Get get the guy. Yeah, but it's very important because there's a lot of what we don't do is what defines the show. We uh-huh. we don't get too sacred. We don't. It doesn't get too anything. We really try to pull back right when it gets to be. Well, there's a there's a cleverness and a sort of subtlety to. The way it's written, yeah, you know, uh, it, I think that's the real trick. Well, thank you. And but you know, and how you can recreate that, I don't know. Like, I what don't know what either. are people's instincts going to be once you start entering environments with the new guy who yeah. doesn't, uh, you know, who, who lives in a culture that isn't yours? Exactly. How do you let that go? I don't know, Mark. Okay, all right. I don't know. Well, now let's. <laughs> you guys were married how long? Six years. And you know, a year into the HBO show was when it. Yeah, it started crumbling. Uh, it started becoming untenable w- during the post-production of the first season of High Maintenance. And I would even say the first HBO season. And I would even say during production. How did that getting, manifest itself? Arguing. Oh. Um, you know, the typical dis- disillusion of a marriage. You know, one thing that became a problem was as I became more recognizable in Brooklyn, mm. Uh, people would stop us, but wouldn't know about her involvement. You know, so the, the resentment. They, they would look through her, mm. and, and that was uh, very uncomfortable. Plus, you know, there's a. I won't speak for her side of the thing, but she, we, we were both having identity shifts. You know, mm. and uh, I was struggling with taking success on mm-hmm. and and leveling out during yeah. that. I feel like everybody has. A, a period of time when they're adjusting to that. And mm-hmm. I think similar for her, but the truth is I think we recognized in each other, the creative thing. We were both a man and a woman who were used to, uh, putting sexuality on top of a relationship when we found an attraction to one another mm-hmm. and weren't used to just being attracted to each other creatively and mm-hmm. just letting that ride out. So that thing is very alive and well still, that creative attraction and and that respect, but the sexuality was 
kind of something we did out of habit, I think, of based on if of every other. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you, that's, but that's something. Looking back, you've decided that. Looking back, I decided that. I think the first couple of years of our relationship, we were. I, I and I really liked being a husband, man. I had mm. to, I liked it so much. I thought it was great. I don't know that I'll ever be one again, but mm. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there was like a conventional relationship in there for about a year and a half, mm-hmm. and then after that, it was something else. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What does that mean? We were creatively combined. The show took over. Oh, oh I get what you're the saying. The show took over. And then, so, but wh- where does the heartbreak stand? I mean, was there a heartbreak? And yes. what did you- Incredible. Incredible. I would say- and she came out, correct? Yeah. Towards, we had already agreed to separate. And while we were doing counseling that winter, uh, there was this, her f- feeling this realization that maybe she- uh, was uh, not a straight person. Mm-hmm. And then once that came into the fold, it was like, a, oh, you know, part of me felt relief about it, not only just how I would seem to the public and not feeling like it, uh, there was nothing I could do. You know right. what I mean? Sure. But the truth is uh, I participated in the in negative back and forth that also led to the end of the marriage. I also, you know, became bitter and resentful and yeah. and fought and yeah. like I'm not off the hook. I I didn't treat that person all the time the way I treat would want to treat something or somebody that I loved. Mm. Yeah, and that's the heartbreak is well. I, I'll say this, like we were texting this morning, like after, while, after we broke up, we were working together 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week still. Immediately. Immediately. There was no break. I think because um, we just finished, finished the show this year, like last week, this might be the first time longer than a couple of weeks that I've spent away from her. You know, we never actually got to break up as people break up. Mm -hmm. We broke up and we were right in each other's face. I would even call it exposure therapy of just learning how to be around each other and not together immediately after. She, she it's found- It's rough, dude, it's rough. It, I would, mm, the truth is I think I'm a little traumatized in love from it, just a little bit. I would think so. Yeah, but I also wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't really do it differently because- no, I dig it, but I mean, but like it doesn't seem like you've, been afforded even the same amount, uh, any amount of time to 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 kind of uh, assess the, the the trauma of just basic, you know, love desolution. Oh well, I would I would argue that I have been able to assess it, but in the presence of her in a room full of writers. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah. so maybe I'm saying you haven't been able to meditate I, it on it with a with with lone alone time. Yes, alone time is, and there are a couple of episodes this season addressing directly alone time. I would subtitle this year, season four, joint custody, because there is this feeling where Katya and I agreed to direct every episode this year. Where in the past two or three seasons, no, two past two seasons, we had other directors come in. Uh-huh. We agreed to direct every episode, and as a result of that choice, we were one was offset while the other was on set. You know, there was more of a this is the ones that I'm working on, and these are the ones that you're working on, and I will. But you had to be in all of them, yeah, as well. That's tricky. Well, 
I'm used to that part of it. That, that's probably the acting. I'm like, no, but I mean to go back and you know, you yes, jump yes. In and out. So, but largely like, whereas in the past we would both always be on set directing every episode. Mm. Uh, now we were directing separately and not present for each other's episodes, except when I was in the in the thing mm. or I would drop by. Right. And it's really cool. There's a Lennon and McCartney thing going on, but mm. we also going out on our own want to make sure that all the things we learn from each other are present in the episodes that we directed solo mm. as well. And that is, uh, it's so cool to watch that part. Like I really, I, I feel so much uh, like, you know, a big thing for me was I never could trust my own taste because I was a younger brother. I would just like look at my older siblings yeah. taste and like copy it or whatever. Yeah. And I was really worried going into the season. Like, what if I have terrible taste and I was just copying Katya this whole time? Or what if I, wow. what, what the fuck? What if I don't have no idea what I'm doing and I was just saying something and then looking at her face to see if she liked it or didn't like yeah. it? When there wasn't a face there, I had to trust my own gut. And I think in doing that, that is the kind of the meditation you're talking about, the solo journey. It's hard, man. I mean, I, I, I experienced that in the sense of more of a it's broader for me like you know just my whole life i'm like you know the who am i why do i dress the way i do mm-hmm. is this you know is this do i like this stuff what do i like mm-hmm. you're ignoring that totality yeah. that <laughs> yeah. we both are i guess yeah but i guess that's what we're celebrating here we're celebrating people's likes and dislikes and what they think works and what they don't work you know well just also this like it, it got it falls in line with the sort of not being able to say no thing mm-hmm. it's like there's a lot of things you think you should like mm-hmm. and there's a lot of things you've sort of because of of things you've identified with or people you have identified with uh you know you like because of them mm-hmm. so you know to really and i'm 56 so and now I have the freedom to sort of do things I, I have not been able to do. So the the idea of you know what makes me happy and what do I like are are questions that have been unanswered for my entire process. But I would even go further to say that taste is more about what you say no to mm-hmm. than what you say yes to. You know. No, for sure. Yeah. Sure. But that's also you know um, closed mindedness. Yes, it can be. It can be until you go into that closed-minded person's living room, and then you're like, "Oh, you have really good taste. <laughs> good, good for you keeping that other shit out of here." <laughs> but as somebody told me a while ago that at a certain point, the password to yes is saying no, and I really I held on to that for a long time. And mostly when people were like, "Oh, we want to buy high maintenance. So oh, we want to put it on this." Yeah. So and it was I'm sure you've had it with this thing. You're like, "No, no, 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 no." Until that thing comes along, until for us that HBO HBO 6 episode promise comes mm. along, and then we're like, "Yes, but you have to say no a million times." Yeah, I say, I say no a lot too, but like it's not, you know, I, I there's not many things I've I've created that don't require my immediate engagement. Do mm-hmm. you know? It seems like you, you know because of your ability to work with an ensemble, and also your you, you know the collective of of you and your crew, and you and your uh, now ex wife, you're bringing a lot of different people in, and in in in, in, in a really great way. I I still don't do that. Trust people enough? No, no. It's just like it's not the world. It's not the you know. I'm not living in that world of creativity what about your show Marin? 
Well, yeah, but that was that's done, and I think that was kind of limited. You know, I made some mistakes in that. You know, it, it was still sort of like, you know, how do I do this? I didn't know how to do any of that. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, I'm I'm reckoning with the idea that I'm I'm sort of an old man in certain ways. And I don't know, really know how I fit into the whole thing. And I don't live a regular life. And I'm not, I've never been that sociable in, in the sense of like, y- you know, I, I'm like w- literally watching high maintenance. I'm sort of like, wow, there's a lot going on out there. And I'm not part of it. <laughs> but that whole show is about being alone and that feeling of lo- like loneliness is one of our sure. mo- most oft used themes. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that alone together feeling is a lot of New York. And it's just a con- the the current condition. Willie well, that I get. Yeah, Willie Staley wrote a great article in the New York Times Magazine about how our show and Master of None and Russian Doll fit into this fantasy of New York now. Mm. And the thing that really, that I was really heartened by what he wrote was that we are talking about the modern condition that we're all alone. You know, seamless, Grubhub, everything. Amazon has driven us into our homes. Coronavirus. Just or just the internet, period. Yeah, just the internet. So that's just that's just being alive now. And, it, and you have to actively fight to not be alone. I guess so. But the one benefit, and I think the one, or, the organic nature of the, you know, what, it, what still is the city of New York is that, you know, you got to be up against other people. Yeah. If you're going to, it's like alone's one thing, but you step out of your house there just to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. You're like, Bleh. but you also build a wall around you because you need to get from point A to point B. I guess so, but you still are got, you, you're still in it. It's man. true. It's true. I, and I'm also coming, you know, whenever I come to LA, I, I go, I walk on that LA River walk. I love that. I like seeing people. The The Uber drivers here are so talkative. Oh my God. They mm. talk, they are the yeah, most talkative but, people in the but world. But there's a different trip, man. Yeah, you know, it is out a different here, trip, you no can doubt. really, you know, you, you, you don't have to see people, man. Mm hmm. Yeah. Do you, I mean, where, where do you find your community? Where do you get it? Uh, well, you know, I got, I got, friends a few friends i got my comedy store which mm-hmm. i go to uh you know I, I i don't my sense of community is not tremendous i you know i do a I do the aa trip but not as regularly as i used to mm-hmm. but uh it, it doesn't it's not i'd say when i need a clubhouse vibe or i need to get out into into the world i'll go to the comedy store and yeah see my people you know that's I, cool you have that i was ju- i wanted to be a stand up comic when i came out here mm. uh, did you try I did. I went to the comedy store. I, I went into the, is it called the belly room? Uh-huh. I did that night. And then I went into the bringer Sunday night uh-huh. slot. And then I did a couple of things there. And I was like, I don't like how I feel in this green room. I don't like the end. Like, did you do stand up in New York? No, I didn't. I, I think it's probably something that will happen to me again one day. I think I, I was watching you do stand up and I was thinking about the camaraderie there. And that's like something that I remember watching the comedians of comedy when I was oh, younger yeah. and yeah, watching yeah. that and being like, "Ooh, I want that. So, you're well, lucky. you know, I kind of like, you know, I check in with them and we all understand each other to a certain degree. It's kind of a, a weird bunch. Uh, but but I, I know that I can go there and feel this is my people, it's yeah. my place, mm-hmm. which is cool. Yeah. Great talking to you, man. Nice talking to you, too, man. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm glad we're both not sick. Oh, me too. Yeah. Smart guy. Creative guy. Interesting guy. Glad he came by. Ben Sinclair. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. 
You can watch all four seasons of High Maintenance on HBO Go and HBO Now. The fourth season is underway. The season finale is Friday, April 3rd. And now I will play raw guitar for you. I'm thinking I'm really getting a handle on this new guitar.